my public high school didn't have an econ class. week's episode of Mixtape the Podcast, I had the pleasure of talking with one of my favorite people, a young econometrician named Peter Hall. Peter is an assistant professor at Brown University who specializes in a range of applied econometrics topics like education and criminal justice. But he's also one of those rare birds whose applied work somehow manages to also advance our understanding of basic methodology like regression and instrumental variables. In our interview today, we discussed his love of instrumental variables and regression, as well as his journey into economics and econometrics as a young boy in Maine interested in the outdoors and mathematics. We also talk about an important new paper of his with Michael Collisar and Paul Coltsmith-Pinkham about challenges related to interpreting regressions with more than one treatment and much more. I'm your host, Scott Cunningham, and this is Mixtape, the podcast. Well, this is uh, great to see you, Peter. Um, thanks, for, see you. thanks for hanging out. Yeah. Um, so uh, I wanted to uh, uh, kind of start off with like a, a little bit of, of an icebreaker. Um, uh, <laughs> it's it, it's uh, uh, what I what I enjoy about uh, you is uh, what your demeanor is like on Twitter. How much uh, you enjoy just being fun and funny, and um, I always uh, laugh every time you make a joke. So I was just kind of thinking we could start off with something light. Um, I just want to know, like, you know, where you grew up and what did you like doing as a kid? And then kind of like uh, related to that, if I could take like the modal days of, uh, you know, of your high school years, like your 11th and 12th grade, what kinds of stuff would I have noticed you doing and thinking about back then? Sure. Well, that's a great open ended question. Yeah. So let me let me do my best. So I uh, I grew up in Maine. Uh, I grew up in kind of a more rural part of Maine on the, on the coast. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of my childhood and sort of early high school times were spent just in nature, in the woods, sort of just hanging out, walking, um, you know, really enjoying nature. It was mm-hmm. a big part of me growing up. Uh, the other thing that was a big part of me growing up was, was math. So I just got very into math at an early age. Um, was on math team in high school. Uh, you know, didn't we never really, you know, crushed the uh, the divisions, but we did pretty well uh, given where we were. Um, and so, you know, I I my parents who both sort of come from an academic uh, background, you know, very much encouraged me getting really into math and getting really into um, you know studies more generally and academia more generally. Yeah. So I guess yeah, I guess growing up, you know, you'd find me after school, like prepping for math team meets, playing Magic the Gathering. Uh, oh, yeah. I was also in, uh, in band and in theater. I was not, I wouldn't say I was especially cool, um, <laughs> but I had a lot, a lot of hobbies like that, you know, sort of <laughs> what you might expect given that description. Yeah. That's great. Wait, so your mom and dad, they have uh, their academics? Yeah. So um, on my, my dad's not an academic, but on my dad's side, my grandfather and great grandfather were both physics professors at, at Dartmouth, actually. Oh, um, wow. And my mom is a professor of marine science uh, at the University of Maine. Oh. Um, so, yeah, growing up, I mean, it was very, 
you know, a bunch of nerds in my house yeah. and, you know, a lot of encouragement to just like dive very deep in, in terms of academic topics. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. It was great. So that, that like that love of nature and stuff, that's partly from your mom. Yeah, definitely. You know, yeah. uh, you know, a big reason why my parents moved to Maine was uh, just the marine science out there is, is amazing. Um, oh, wow. And being right on the water and, you know, lots of exploring tide pools with my mom and, you know, oh. learning about science and nature. It was just like a very uh, rich place to grow up as a kid. Um, oh, wow. When you're when you grow up in Maine, at some point, you're like, I got to get out of Maine because like, right. there's not not a ton to do. And you're like yeah. 16, 17, looking for, you know, something beyond Magic the Gathering and, and yeah. problems. But yeah. uh, but growing up as a kid, I mean, it was amazing. Uh, yeah, I bet. I bet. I grew up in a small town in Mississippi and it was like you just it's like the whole town is your uh, your sandbox. You just. Can yeah. Wow. Yeah, what, exactly. what kind of vacations would y'all go on? So actually, um, you know, it's funny when you live in like Massachusetts or something, you always vacation in Maine, like you always go a little further north to when you live in Maine, we vacationed in Nova Scotia, Canada. So we would oh, go just wow. even further north. Oh, wow. Uh, so yeah, my parents actually had some land up there from when they were younger and they were sort of developing it when I was a kid. So in the summers, we would go up to Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia, very much the middle of nowhere in some ways, but um, beautiful, beautiful place. And and yeah, just sort oh, that's of cool. Oh, know. what a what a what a neat uh, opportunity all that was as a kid. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, so then you end up at Wesleyan. Yeah. Uh, and so, so how did you end up at Wesleyan? How, and uh, how did you end up with the econ group uh, in the econ yeah. department? So, um, so with Wesleyan, you know, when you grow up where I did, I didn't, I wasn't very sophisticated when it came to picking colleges like I feel like nowadays everyone is very sophisticated and they submit you know 30 mm -hmm. applications or something right I I ended up mostly applying to uh schools that grabbed my interest and so I applied to Dartmouth because of my family sort of legacy there and I applied to Wesleyan because I was a little bit of a hippie growing up my parents were a bit of a hippie but I also I really liked the vibe there people are you know very um independent and very you know sort of outside the box thinking and very engaged. And, you know, I visited both of those colleges and Dartmouth is great, but something about Wesleyan just sort of grabbed me. Yeah. The way I got into econ was actually kind of by accident. So, you know, my, my public high school didn't have an econ yeah. you know, class. Uh, we, we had some AP classes, but definitely not econ AP. Um, I had to take intro econ, like econ 101, my first year at Wesleyan in order to satisfy a prerequisite for a different major that I thought I wanted to take, which was yeah. more like political science, mm. more less quantitative, actually. Uh, but I had a professor, Professor Gil Skillman, who's still there at Wesleyan, great guy, just phenomenal teacher. And I was just hooked. Um, the way that he was using sort of mathematical tools to describe complicated social phenomenon and political phenomenon, mm. like it was just it was fascinating. Um, wow. And that was, you know, that was like theory, right? That was like supply and demand and things yeah. like that. And yeah. then the next year I had to take, <laughs> I had to take an econometrics class oh. and that just like that from then on out, it was, it was nothing else. It was Why? very hard what? to get what? me. Yeah. Why? What happened in the econometrics class? So um, yeah. So I, similarly to not taking uh, economics in high school, I also didn't take statistics. 
so I, I was very into math, but it was sort of, you know, real analysis stuff like calculus and, and things like that. I found that very elegant, very beautiful. Mm. Statistics was always presented as like less elegant and less sort of like real math or something. So I never really took it. Yeah, yeah. I struggled. I struggled a ton in the first econometrics class I took. I, it was the lowest grade I got in college. It just like didn't click to me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there was something about it that by the end of the class, I sort of started to see the power of the toolkit. Mm. And it was really when we started, you know, talking about regression and stock, especially when we started talking about IV, that um, there was some, I, I sort of started to see just like the magic of, you know, using these formulas to make sense of these data and sort of, you know, take actual real world things and draw conclusions about them it felt very scientific in a way that, you know, calculus was not. Calculus was very abstract. It was very mm. useful for describing phenomenon, but the inference that you could get with stats, I don't know. There's something about that that really, really just unlocked a, a, a love in, in, my, in my brain. And yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. ever since yeah. then. Yeah. Um, uh, it's funny. I, I want to jump ahead to stuff, but I, I think I'll probably just try to remember it. it it's yeah. so... Um, what do you remember being uh, first kind of like struck by with just OLS? What was it? What was it that kind of hit you at the beginning? Um, so, you know, I think the mechanics of it were just very nice. So the thing that I love about regression is that it has all this nice geometric interpretation to it. Like I can draw you a picture, of course, with just, you know, bivariate regression, I can just draw you a picture line and residuals and stuff. And so it had yeah. this nice graphical component to it mm. the whole idea of like projection in higher dimensions um like it just had this nice i think geometry to it mm. um and then the geometry mapped very well to the sort of goals right so like the whole idea of regression is you know you're trying to fit a relationship parsimoniously like you're trying to approximate some complicated relationship in a small number with a small number of parameters and the logic of how you do that has this, again, kind of nice geometric logic to it. And something like that really grabbed me. It didn't grab me as much as IV grabbed me. IV just like took me by the, by the belt and just, just dragged me. I mean, it was amazing when I first learned about this idea of, of instrumental variables. Um, that was also kind of graphical. You know, it's funny on Twitter and other places, there's all this DAG versus potential outcome debate it was actually a dag that first grabbed me with iv i mean i think i still teach iv this way too I, I like to draw the picture of you know the confounded relationship and then you have this external thing that comes and like shocks that mm -hmm. system um that idea that you can have this sort of system that's you know feeding on itself it's endogenous in some way you know the classic reverse causality simultaneity stuff or like the emitted variables by stuff this idea that you have this system and then you hit it with some shock from the outside and you can use that to sort of trace out different parts of the system. Yeah. Again, I think geometrically and sort of like logically very intuitive, but I had never really seen that logic formalized before. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was, I, I remember that day very, very clearly when I first learned IV. Were you thinking IV. of causality the moment you saw IV? Because, you know, it's sometimes I feel like, 
until you know you can teach econometrics and never say the word causality so yeah it's not like it's not like everybody no yeah yeah the way connection. the way i was taught it i think was very much like the classical econometric tradition until fairly recently in the scheme yeah. of things which was more like structural equations and less causal effects right um so yeah so i had this you know this idea of like, well, you have like a supply equation and demand equation and they relate yeah. and then you see the equilibrium and then with IV, you can like move one of the curves around and trace out the other. Yeah. Again, sort of very geometric and, and intuitive, but not causal, like not right. in the language of causal effects. Yeah. And it's funny, I, I actually remember just to jump around a little bit in my first year of grad school uh, in the like econometric sequence uh, you know, one of the students at some point when we were talking about IV, obviously in a much more technical way, raised his hand. I was like, yeah, but okay, but how does, how do I know that this is like a causal relationship or something? And I remember all of us just like being like, oh, wow, that's like such a deep question that we never really thought about before. So like, even though, you know, we had learned a ton, right. Of just the mechanics, I think you're right that it's only honestly, like fairly recently that that connection has really been clarified and, and obviously I'm a big proponent of that, but yeah. Yeah. You, you think, uh, you think if you could go back to Wesleyan that, that you, you probably were seeing it is causal though. I think, you know, in some ways. Yeah. So, I mean, my, um, I, my first foray into research was I did this senior thesis, which actually eventually turned into a paper it's not the paper I'm most proud of at this point, given how much I've learned since then, but, you know, where we were trying to look at sort of the relationship between, um, uh, it was a development paper, I was looking at the relationship between economic growth and civil conflict, mm. and we used an IV strategy that was sort of coming from like international finance, and, you know, I won't get into the details, but I was sort of always thinking about it as this, you know, causal relationship, that there's some yeah. shock that happens in the U.S., and it creates this financial transmission to developing countries and that deteriorates economic conditions. And then we looked at the effect on, on civil conflict outcomes. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that kind of IV paper is in retrospect, much more similar to the kind of IV stuff that I think about now than the IV as it was taught to me in terms of simultaneous equations and structural right, models. Right, right. So I think, I think there was something there, but I definitely didn't, I didn't learn about potential outcomes until mostly harmless came out which was mm. after this class. And just like with statistics, the first time I encountered potential outcomes in that book, I was deeply confused. Uh, and mm. it took a while to really like get yeah. the formalization of it. Yeah, yeah. But you read Mostly Harmless uh, before MIT? You went to, you, went, you did yeah. your doctorate. Yeah, the timing, the timing was amazing. So I, I was in my senior year of undergrad uh, in 2009 to 2010. Uh -huh. and mostly harmless, I think, came out in early 2009, something yeah. like that. So mm -hmm. the timing was amazing. It came out and one of my professors was just like, hey, this book seems like something you might want to read. And I was like, this looks goofy as heck. I mean, it's like using uh, like Douglas Adams quotes yeah. and stuff and, right. you know, very silly cartoons and like, who's this, who's this Josh Angers guy? Um, but I read it and, you know, I got a lot out of it not nearly as much as I would get later because mm. I didn't have the grad training to really understand a lot of the stuff there. Mm -hmm. But, um, but it was, it very much opened my eyes in terms of, you know, seeing how the causal concepts could be formalized in mm -hmm. this statistical language. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. What, 
when you read that book initially and then you read it later and then like you know you go through it go through what what yeah. exactly, what's the the second layer that maybe most people don't see the first time that's a great question i mean um that book is just it's so dense with insight yeah. um you know it's a very it's a very unusual textbook in that it doesn't try and cover like lots of ground but the ground that it covers it covers in like real depth and obviously i mean the nice thing about uh josh as a as a textbook writer is that he's and and steve too is that they're you know not just econometricians but they're they really use use things yeah uh, they really use the tools for in in applied research and so um you know i think when you first read the book at least when i first read the book I was mostly getting the like applied insights out of it because I didn't have the mathematical sort of training. Mm -hmm. um, but then as I read it later in grad school and eventually I actually uh, took the class that Josh sort of, uh, you know, I don't know if you based the book on yeah. or like they co-evolved together and then I eventually TA'd it. And like, I feel like each of those times I sort of got deeper and deeper in terms of the mathematical insights. Like there's just a lot of like beautiful connections uh, with two stage three squares, especially in like other things that I just totally missed the first time I read it because I was just trying to see like, well, what is, what is this idea that IV can be causal? And so I was focusing more on like the applied stuff, I think, yeah, like yeah, Angus Kruger yeah. 91 and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so your, your time at MIT, what, what, what's the, you know, everybody changes a lot over their yeah. training. What, what do you think, what do you think yeah. Tom was for you? Um, yeah, I changed a ton. So I, before going to MIT, I worked at the New York Fed for two years and I actually worked in the finance group. And so when I came to MIT, the thing that I knew the most about was corporate finance. And so mm -hmm. I was pretty sure I would go and like do corporate finance. Um, but then it, the nice thing about MIT is that in your first year, when most grad programs focus on you know, taking micro, macro, and metrics, they also encourage you and uh, to take a field class. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up kind of by chance, honestly, taking labor, um, not because I knew anything about labor, but because someone suggested it as a good sort of first class to take. Mm -hmm. And Josh taught that class along with Prague Pathic, both of whom became my advisors later. Mm. Um, part of that class, we had to do a replication exercise. And I really enjoyed that. And Basically, through that class, uh, started talking to Josh and eventually got involved in the work at Blueprint Labs at MIT, which is Josh's sort of education uh, lab. Started doing this stuff on charter schools and, you know, kind of similarly. Oh, that's where that started. Yeah. So kind of similarly to, you know, when I first learned about stats, like I didn't know anything about education research or I knew some things about Ivy, but not really Josh's world of Ivy. Yeah. But it just grabbed me in the same way and, yeah. you know, never looked back. Right. Um, and so that really, that was in the first year, basically. I went from not really knowing what I wanted to do research on yeah. uh, to just having this very clear sense that, you know, if I could hack it, I wanted to do something related to applied econometrics and labor. Um, yeah. I, it was not obvious to me at all when I first started that I could do econometrics because it has this like, aura of being very difficult and very mathematical and I was yeah. not you know a Putnam scholar like I was not you know the the type of I didn't know measure theory at first right. you know right and so it was not obvious to me that I could do this work but um it became more obvious as I went along that there was this sort of path for more applied metrics 
research. Mm, mm, yeah. mm. You know, like moving into this paper, uh, moving to this paper, I want, I wanted to talk about yeah. IV and I wanted to talk about your new paper with, with Paul Goldsmith Pinkham and, and I say Michael Colsar, but that's not right. Is it? I, it's funny. I say McCall sometimes, oh. but sometimes I, uh, I say Michael too. I, my sense is he doesn't mind <laughs> which, Fine. which way you say. Okay, it, good. But, All right. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to talk about both of them. I, they're, they're probably going to just naturally lead into each other, but this new paper, uh, on estimating multiple treatment effects with progression. Yeah. Before we get into the details of it, um, I, I interviewed Imbens a couple of weeks ago and, and mm. I asked him, you know, like when he got, when, when him and Angers had that late result that for the late theorem paper, um, you know, how much of it was just like that potential outcomes opened up the problem for them. And he said, you know, it, it really did a lot. They had a, yeah. a late result with the, with the, um, the latent index model, but he said right. like, it really kind of opened up a lot. And so I was kind of, you know, in yeah. this paper, you know, I was just kind of like remembering back to when I first took econometrics, uh, one of the things that really struck me was, oh, well, you can like control for stuff. You can like run this regression and then you can like control for stuff and you can have all these covariates and, and, and how many things in econometrics that we sort of know uh, we, we actually don't have that potential outcomes yeah. taught to us at the beginning. And I was looking through this, this paper and, and it's like this weird feeling reading the paper, because I feel like you're telling me that I, that that controlling for stuff is kind of true and, and not true at the same time. Yeah. And there's all this, potential outcomes modeling in it. So before we like get into it, I'm just kind of curious, is potential outcomes modeling opening up regression and we don't really understand it like we think we do, or is that overstating it or what? No, I think that's a fair characterization. I think one way to view what potential outcomes is, is it's a, it's a model that allows you to consider, you know, arbitrary misspecification in a particular sense, right? It's like a model of how variables relate to each other that is non-parametric, right? It doesn't assume linearity at its basic form. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so what you can do is take that model and see what the estimand of a regression gives you when you relax those sort of assumptions. I mean, that's really the core of the late result. It's a core of a lot of the stuff we've been seeing recently with the diff and diff literature is people taking the potential outcomes model and just seeing, well, okay, we have this model, we have this procedure which turns data into estimates, right? right. Diff and diff or regression or IV. And let's just see what this machine does when we apply it to this more general model. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in the process, we've learned a lot. So, you know, um, the paper you're talking about relates to this earlier paper by Josh, actually in 1998, an econometric paper studying the effects of um, volunteer service uh, in the military on, on later life outcomes, earning outcomes related to his draft lottery stuff earlier. Mm -hmm. And there's a very sort of now, I think, famous result there that says, well, if I regress on a binary treatment, 
and flexible controls. So think of that as like just binary indicators for which group you're in and as controls, that's the most flexible you can get sort of. Then, you know, applying the potential outcomes framework to that procedure, what that procedure identifies is a convex average of treatment effects when the treatment is conditionally randomly assigned. Mm. So that's this famous result, Angus 1998. And, you know, that's in mostly harmless. Josh teaches that it's a very nice result because it draws this connection between other methods of estimating treatment effects like propensity score weighting yeah. or matching and regression, which you can think of as basically giving you some weighted average of convex effects. Yeah. What I think, you know, we've learned since then is that result is actually kind of special ah. and does not generalize well outside of the single treatment case. It does generalize outside the binary treatment case. So it works. It turns out if you have a continuous instrument, a continuous treatment or multi-value treatment, but it turns out, and this is the point of our, of our new paper is that, you know, if as is often the case, you're trying to estimate the effects of multiple treatments jointly, mm -hmm. you don't get this Angris 98 results. So regression is kind of special in how it treats sort of single treatments. And mm -hmm. what's, I think, so a couple of things about that, um, you know, first of all, we've actually known for a little while now that that's also true for IV. So for IV, there's the late theorem for binary treatments. There's generalizations of that for continuous treatments and multivalue treatments. But it turns out that IV with two treatments, mutually exclusive treatments, does not have a kind of natural late oh. interpretation, except under pretty uh, strong conditions on either treatment effect heterogeneity or, or uh, compliance patterns. Um, and so it turns out that that's also true for regression. Mm. Um, and so there's something, you know, the way I think of it is like, if you're doing a, a bivariate regression or you're doing Frischois and a bivariate regression, so you're, you're basically interested in just one treatment coefficient, then you can write the regression or the IV as kind of a ratio. Mm. Uh, and ratios are sort of intuitive and they work nicely. Once you add multiple treatments, then we have to deal with matrix inverses. And it turns out that matrix inferences are just like more complicated than we think. Right. I joked about this a little while ago. It's just a more complicated computation that doesn't play well with the potential outcomes model oh. as we think. Oh. Anyways, so, so um, this is a very long-winded answer to your question of, yeah, I think that's exactly the value of the potential outcomes model is it allows us to make these kind of uh, judgments about procedures, which we think we know and we think we trust yeah. um, in a more general setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The more the more recent version of our paper, which we hope to put out soon, maybe by the time this is posted, we'll see. Um, it actually draws connections between the result in that literature and the diff and diff literature. Yeah. So it turns out it's actually all kind of one phenomenon of contamination bias, the same as what Sun and Abraham are pointing out in their paper. Yeah. Uh the same thing there, the same as in Boyershak at all. Yeah. It turns out that all these things can be nested in a general result. Yeah. But yeah. the I think the virtue of our newer paper is to focus on a setting which has not been considered often, which is kind of a more design-based approach where you're not using parallel trends or right. diff and diff, but you're really using the conditional random assignment of a treatment. Well that's interesting because you know in the just for the people that are that are listening, you know, this this I have another interview with Sophie Sun, but like in that in that paper the the contamination is on this it it would seem as though it's really specific because it's like mm -hmm. it's an event study diff and diff for those listening it's an event study all the leads and lags of uh, of interacting the the treatments with these relative time indicators 
differential timing OLS model. And the problem is coming from already treated groups. You know, it's all this like, you know, typical new diff and diff stuff. Yep. But the result is really interesting because it's like every lead and lag is being contaminated by other treatment effects from other leads and lags. But you're saying that all of these covariate regression, you know, all of these models with multiple treatments, not, not even they're all having features. So that must mean like they all have these weighted, these weights that are deleting things. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So the, the son and Abraham results, one way to think of it is that, you know, you have these indicators for relative time till treatment. You could think of those as different treatments. So, you know, there's a natural panel set up here, but there doesn't have to be, you could just think of it as like a cross section with certain controls, some of the, which are fixed effects. Mm -hmm. And so mechanically that's, that's the connection to our paper, but, but yeah, so basically what we show, what we do in the, in the new version of the paper, which hopefully again, will be out soon is we consider sort of two identification strategies. One, which is model-based where Mm -hmm. you model the sort of trends in the outcome basically and restrict those trends to be the same across different treatment groups. That's kind of the diff and diff approach. Got it. One is, one is design-based where you don't make any assumptions about potential outcomes, but you model the assignment of the treatment. You say it's like conditionally random given some stuff. Um, And what we show is that under either of those two approaches, you get this kind of contamination phenomenon. Um, and you know what that means is that the effect, the, the coefficient on any given treatment, whether that's truly like I randomly assign people to one of three treatments at a given point in time, or like in Son and Abraham, I you know, look at pre and post periods, the coefficient on, uh, on each of those treatments includes both the own treatment effect and a linear combination of effects on other treatments. Again, uh-huh. this is in a regression, which progresses some outcome on a bunch of treatment indicators and flexible controls. Uh, and the weights in the contamination terms, some of which are positive, some of which are negative, basically mean that in general, you can have kind of weird stuff coming out of the regression. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's not a, one thing I want to be clear on here is that, you know, it's not a theorem that there is a problem. It's a potential for a problem. And the way that that problem manifests is if you have heterogeneous effects and you have that effect heterogeneity being correlated with the weights that regression puts on the different, the different groups. Yeah. Uh, if that heterogeneity is minimal or it's uncorrelated with the, with the weights, then there is no problem. Actually, things sort of wash out. Um, but it's the potential for a problem. And, and again, it occurs either in the design-based setup or in the own or in the, the model-based setup. The yeah. one difference, just to point this out, um, you know, there's also this concern about even if you only have one treatment in the diff and diff setup, this is kind of like in the Goodman-Bacon paper or in the deshaies martin Foy paper, even if you only have one treatment, you still get sort of negative weights potentially on own treatment effects. Mm-hmm. That turns out to be specific to model-based identification strategies like diff and mm-hmm. diff. So the own treatment negative weighting, the negative weights put on the own treatment effect, not Son and Abraham, yeah. that, that's specific to diff and diff. And again, this goes back to the, um, the Angris 98 paper, which says that if you have conditional random assignment, yeah. if you have that, model, uh, that, that design-based approach, then, then you don't have negative weights. So the model-based 
setup. I, I might've said things wrong before. The model-based setup is the one with negative weights in the own treatment. Well, so in that, in that, that Sophie Sun and Sarah Abraham paper, um, yeah, it's kind of funny. Y'all were colleagues, right? Y'all, y'all were classmates. Yeah, this, this kind yeah. of here. This y'all were thinking about a lot of these yeah, things. It's it's really funny. So um, they were a bit uh, but, uh, behind me in grad school time. Uh-huh. But I spent I spent a year after grad school at Microsoft Research, which is just oh. next door to MIT, and I was actually working on a paper about mover regressions, which is still just a working paper on my website. But it was sort of I think before this literature, I mean, other people were thinking about this at the same time, but before the other papers had come out, I was thinking about mover regressions. Turns out that uh, 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 Son and Abraham, they were, you know, Sophie was also thinking about, and Sarah were often also thinking about this stuff. And so we actually had like a couple of lunches where we were working on it and they were like, okay, we're gonna think about the like over time, you know, problems. And you can yeah. think about the like mover problems. Turns out they're the same thing as we now learned in this new paper. But yeah, yeah there was definitely something in the air. I mean, I think it's hard when you go through a class at MIT and you see potential outcomes and you see these kinds of results, like you were talking about where you, you know, see what potential outcomes buys you in a, in a given regression procedure, IV procedure. It's hard to not think about that everywhere. And, you right. know, start thinking about in, in panel data and and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Uh, um, yeah. It makes me, it's like, I, I keep thinking if we're still learning what OLS is, uh, it's like, it makes me wonder how much, is this like, was this like low hanging? It's like, it makes me wonder is like, was this low hanging fruit? Like this paper that you're working on getting it out, but it's, it's not really, it's deep. It's real deep things. Yeah, why is it just of, now? Why is it just now that this is? Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, some would say that they've sort of known problems like this exist for a long time. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, actually before all this stuff was happening, I was, you know, in grad school doing some stuff with like diff and diff. And I'm sure many other people had this experience as well, where you run a different diff, if you get some estimate and they're like, okay, I'm going to like look at subgroups or something. And then you get subgroups and they're like very weird in relation to the overall different diff. Mm-hmm. And so I think like some, I think there's been some applied intuition out there for a long time that like yeah. something is weird with these sorts of regressions. Right. Um, right. And that's actually something that I, I think is really great about this recent trend in econ and in metrics is that it is really intertwined with the applied work. Yeah. Um, like it's very attentive to the things that applied researchers want to know about yeah. and want solutions for. Uh-huh. And, you know, if you look at the people writing these papers, like some of them are like more pure econometricians, but right. most, most of them are, are not. So yeah, yeah, most yeah. of them are people that also work on, you know, mm-hmm. substantive research questions, not methodological research questions. And um, so to answer your question, I think it was low hanging fruit in one sense, but it took that, I think that shift towards, you know, really, really attending to sort of applied questions, Yeah, which is not a new trend, but I think it's been a trend that's been growing for a long time now. And, and I think that's partly the reason why we see what we see now. Yeah. In, in this result, in this, in your estimating multiple treatment effects with regression, it's like, yeah. um, it's like you think about all the stiff and diff stuff and so much of it's about heterogeneity. Yeah. And since there's multiple treatments, there's heterogeneity. So, but it's mm-hmm. like, I always kind of thought yeah. that the diff and diff work was all about heterogeneity. 
and so I guess I'm just trying to figure out like yeah I, no it's, it's drawing some crosswalk here with yeah, that by having multiple treatments it's yeah so it's it it's both in our paper so there's definitely you know different effects across different treatments but the the bias problem that we're studying is very similar in that it's heterogeneity across units across people for a given treatment uh -huh. so right so the the ingredients for there to be a problem is that you know any given treatment effect is very variable across people yeah. and again that that variation is sort of systematically correlated with something in the regression which doesn't have a super intuitive meaning all the time yeah. um but yeah and and you know just to belabor this point you know because i i think it's kind of important and, and sometimes lost in this in this discussion it's not a guarantee that there's a problem and in fact yeah, right. i i in my own on this topic of you know applied work on my own like replications and sort of futzing with this stuff my sense is that in a lot of settings, the correlation between treatment effect heterogeneity and weights is not super strong, such that okay. maybe there isn't that big of a problem in a lot of these cases, but yeah. that's just well, my Does that make you prior. think that heterogeneity is not as, it's like, it's funny to think about, you know, yeah. the, the late result. Yeah. I think about the late result is like, you know, it's like extreme heterogeneity, signs yeah. can flip at the local and all these kinds of things, but yeah. But then I've also kind of looked around and, and, you know, some of these, some of these diff and diffs with differential timing, like I get the same thing using, yeah. not, not yeah. always, you can jimmy it obviously right. where it gets crazy, but. I think it's, um, it's pretty unrealistic to say that there's no treatment effect heterogeneity. Yeah. I think it's much more reasonable to think that in a lot of settings, people are not selecting on heterogeneity in a way that screws up, say regression or adds complexity right. to IV. Right, 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 so, right. so I think you know, it, this is related to our own work, you know, thinking about like school quality and hospital quality. It looks like, you know, people select on the, not on those treatment effects, but on like sort of the levels, like the potential outcomes. Yeah. And you'd think in our models, like, you know, going back to Roy and other models like that, you think that there should be selection on gains. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that in some settings there definitely is, but yeah. in a lot of settings, I mean, we know causal inference is hard. Like it's hard enough yeah. to get an average treatment effect. Uh-huh. And we have PhDs. It's right. it's it's harder to imagine that in a given setting, people are sort of accurately predicting the heterogeneity in their own effects and selecting on it. Yeah. And so that's how I sort of think about it now. I think like in a lot of settings, you know, it's important to check whether treatment effect heterogeneity is important and, and screws up your regression estimates. But mm. if you find that it doesn't, maybe you shouldn't be so surprised depending on the setting because it does right. really take a certain level of sophistication to yeah, think yeah, that yeah. that's yeah. Yeah, that's what that's that's interesting. The so kind of like you know making a transition. It's kind of funny that when I think about this this pink Paul Goldsmith Pinkham you and and uh, Michael, it's like I think kind of of the Judge Ivy people a little bit. Yeah, you and well, Dom you know, it's funny. This this paper actually started because we were trying to write a Judge Ivy paper. We still are writing a Judge Ivy paper. That's uh -huh. also in the works. But we started, you know, Paul and I have been talking for a really long time about trying to bring out more of the econometrics of that work because it's exploding. Right. People are doing Judge IV everywhere. Yeah. And we think that there's some subtle issues there that aren't always, you know, discussed. Totally. Um, uh, and so we started working on that. And then we brought in McCall because he's been thinking about the econometrics here for a really long time. Yeah. And then it was around this time last year that we were working on it. And at some point we realized that there was like an issue, which uh -huh. is that 
in the judge IV setting, it's a, it's kind of a multiple treatment setting where the, in IV land, where the treatments are like indicators for being assigned to different judges and you have Mm -hmm. controls. Mm -hmm. And we realized that there was this contamination bias problem in the first stage, which can lead to sort of problems in the judge IV setup. Mm. But when we realized it, we were like, oh, this is actually a much more general problem. And that's why the multiple. Why don't see that anyway? Well, you're thinking about judge instruments all the time, but what, why did that make you think there was some contamination? Cause like, it right. seems like with the judge, with the judge design, and this is probably going to expose my, you know, me being ignorant, but like, I always just kind of think of, well, I'm just using them as instruments. And so I don't really care about the coefficients on them. Yeah. yeah. I'm just kind of trying to induce variation. From yeah. Them. So, well, so, so think about, going on? yeah. So think about the first stage regression in a judge IV. So it's like, my treatment on judge fixed effects and controls. Now, yeah. for, for the listeners who aren't, <laughs> like Scott and I have talked about this a lot, so this is like maybe not obvious to people listening. Often in judge, judge IV, you actually use like a leniency measure as your instrument, yeah. but it turns out that, you know, there's some equivalencies there such that when you're using leniency, I think you should really think about what you're doing as, as, assigning, as using the assignment to different judges. So, yeah. so think about a first stage sort of in that spirit where I regress treatment on judge indicators and controls. Um, so that's a multiple treatment regression, yeah. right? Of mm-hmm. different judge indicators. Yeah. And, and the know, first so stage is causal under independence. First stage is causal. Like it's, absolutely. It's actually but, the exact but, situation. Right. But remember that for IV to work well or to be guaranteed to work well, we need monotonicity, right? So we need right. the, the coefficient on each judge indicator to be causal in that yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. With contamination bias, the coefficient on each judge indicator is actually a weighted average of own judge effects and, and effects on across different judges. So even oh, if you have, even yeah. if you have monotonicity holding truly for the, judge. yeah. for the judges, when oh, you do gosh. regression because of this contamination bias problem, you can have monotonicity violations creep in. How are you not uh, going to have monotonicity? It seems like you're almost certainly going to have it, aren't you? Almost like, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same sort of thing where like you need the violations to be correlated with treatment effect. Oh, sure. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, but, right. but yeah, definitely there's a problem potentially. Like, and, well, and so are, are the standard tests. So none of these like subsample first stage monotonicity. Yeah. There, probably everything is, really get in it, right? Everything is sort of subject to this, to this potential issue because oh, often in these, in these, you know, regressions, it's important to control for like court, by time fixed effects. Yeah, 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 right. He's, and yeah, I think often the, the paper is presented sort of, again, what we were describing before of like, okay, well, I have some stuff, I just control for it linearly. We know yeah. that that sort of works. Now I think we have to maybe take into account the fact that that doesn't, that doesn't always work. Yeah, we think. yeah. It's supposed to have been really exciting work for you being a big fan. It's fun, of yeah. yeah. I bet you've really liked it. I have, I mean, I, it's such a joy doing this work because you know, you, you work on a problem, you figure out this like issue, and then you just sort of think about, you know, all of its implications. And because everyone is sort of talking about metrics now, I mean, like Twitter is really helped in this, like Mm -hmm. there's just demand and interest in what I used to think was just like little nerdy things that I would like, you know, sort of share among some co-authors and colleagues. Like now there's, I think, real appetite for uh, applied econometrics in a way yeah. that I, I hadn't seen when I was just coming out of grad school. I think things have really changed in the last couple of years. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. um, and working with, you know, people like Paul and McCall and, and others, you know, all my other co-authors, Carol, uh, Will Doby, David Arnold, all, all these people are like, 
just like, and Jason Ablock, they're just like incredibly thoughtful and also, you know, kind of drawn from this distribution of like more methodsy people and more applied people. And so it's really fun to just, you know, work on these things with those, with those people. Also, they're all right. really nice, nice. Yeah. It's also, yeah. also just great. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. that's great. That's, that's yeah. great. Um, I was talking to Embens. He's kind of got this, uh, you know, he's, he's shared a lot that like when he was a little kid, um, he got into econometrics cause he liked chess. And so hmm. it seems like, it's like, I don't, you know, you think like nobody really knows what economists do. It's like this thing that people talk about yeah. like why it's so hard to get people to major in it. Cause they literally don't have a clue what it is. You know, like yeah. everybody knows, everybody knows what a physicist is and you know, and they've never taken physics and they know what right. a physicist is like they, they have no clue. Weirdly, they have no clue what an economist is, but it's like, it seems like it's even more true for econometrics. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of thinking to myself, what do you think, there's some kid out there in Maine, you know, walking <laughs> around, like, you know, looking at the tide pools and stuff. And they, they have not taken econometrics. Yeah. Like what exactly is it that they need to know to make them think this actually, it, it might look really hard and it is really hard or whatever, but, yeah. uh, but it's like actually, taps into something that you already have yeah well i right? think i think the there are some concepts around causal inference not necessarily econometrics but like you know some simple concepts about selection bias about iv about you know you know those sorts of 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 issues which could be and probably should be taught at a very young level right without necessarily any reference to economics per se. I mean, it's great to have this, this methods grounded in a particular subject matter. And we benefit a lot from having the models of econ to, to sort of guide us. But I think, um, you know, if, if, if I could like convince a group of high schoolers to care about, you know, causal inference and, and whether DAGs or potential outcomes, like some tool to make progress on using observational data to make inferences about causal or structural parameters, I think you can do that at a pretty high level and yeah. I think you can get people hooked. I mean, I think that when I teach econometrics, you think DAGs would be really helpful for that? DAGs are very helpful for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I say, I mean, especially for IV and things, it's, it's a very useful way of uh, illustrating, you know, the basic yeah. logic of what we're, what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and I mean, you know, I think when I teach econometrics, I definitely start from there. I'm like, look, you know, in some level, what we're trying to get at here is a very age old question. Like causality is this very age old thing. And, you know, it's inherently a part of the human process to like try and make causal inferences without necessarily being able to randomize stuff. Right. right. And at one level, what econometrics does, what causal inference methods do more generally is just give you a toolkit for making headway on that sort of fundamental yeah. human, yeah, yeah, yeah. human yeah. objective. And right. I feel like if someone told me that in high school, I would have been hooked right away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of right because like, you know, even in Mississippi, like where I grew up, I mean, we had the state science fair and you'd go with an experiment. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. It's like, I mean, like the idea of the, of the experiment, you know, yeah. something. I want so people to show up to science fair with different diffs or maybe really? not different diffs, but you know, like, well, something like observational data analysis yeah. is, is something that anyone can do. And in fact, we do all the time informally. Right. 
Right. But if, if someone, you know, is, is able to, I think you can do like sort of simple research projects at a very early age. Um, and I think, you know, the more sophisticated stuff requires special data, requires unique institutional circumstances and right. harder math and stuff like that. But the basic logic of, you know, selection on observables, parallel trends, that sort of thing, like that's should be very accessible, I think. Seems like too the uh, what that kid probably would would also like is is the the real world application. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's what you said kind of captivated you was like to see the because you're like sorting into political science. You're kind of like already yeah. moving into real world yeah. stuff, not just pure math. Yeah. So probably things like uh, uh, working with data, learning about policies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we can't lose sight of the actual questions we want to answer. Yeah. It's like, it's very easy to get stuck in all of the like cool math and stuff. Right. But at the, at the end of the day, the reason we're, we're doing this is to try and improve policy and improve lives. Improve um, lives yep. And, but you know, there's just so many directions you can go. That's yeah. one thing about my own work is that I just, I can't stay constrained to any given field. I find that I'm like, moving from like health to education to everything else. Cause it's like, you know, there's just too many interesting questions right. on the applied side of things. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. once you have a, a toolkit, you can find the similarities across different contexts and sort of bring it to different questions yeah. in a very nice way. Well, you know, you made this like uh, this, this, this cool uh, Bardic instrument paper. Um, and it's kind of funny. It's like a couple of things now that you're co-authors with Paul, I feel like I feel comfortable <laughs> asking this question. But yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> for, for people that, that are listening, uh, the, the, from, you know, because this all worked, worked out really nice. Like yeah. it's, it's like these two really important papers kind of complimentary, but like, was it at all? So, so it's the setup for people listening, there's that, uh, Peter has um, with Kirill Borsak and, and Xavier Yarvel this paper in Review of Economic Studies on uh, on a particular application of instrumental variables, sometimes called the Bardic instrument, and sometimes called shift share. And then Paul Goldsmith Pinkham with two with two other people have a paper in, almost published at the exact same time in the American Economic Review, also on Bardic instruments. And so, but they're very different. Well, they're yeah. they are different. They're not yeah. very different, yeah. but they're like they kind of both sort of opened up what this was doing. And so b before I kind of get into the, the, the background of it, it's just like, was it stressful? Yes. You know, you guys were like <laughs> early in your careers, like one of yeah. you a publication almost means the other one won't get. Yeah. Yeah. We were very, we were very lucky in how that, how the dust settled on that. You know, it's funny, Paul and I actually crossed paths at the New York fed before oh, yeah, either of right. us, well, he was already in grad school before I went into grad school. So I knew Paul for a really long time, actually. Uh -huh. um, and I have this very distinct memory of him presenting an early version of, of his paper at labor lunch at MIT one day. Uh -huh. um, and, and I remember sitting there and being like, oh, wow, this is very cool. Um, but like, you know, not being fully, I guess, Paul, if you're listening, apologies, being fully satisfied with how they were <laughs> thinking about shift share IV. Uh, and then it was, wasn't until later that Kirill uh, and Xavier, they had already started thinking about this stuff and they sort of asked me to join uh, their project, uh, you know, sort of after grad school. You know, it was stressful. Um, and that's something that's kind of funny about this recent 
you know, applied econometric surge is that it's a lot of young people. I know. Like I early career people working yeah, on it. Really matters. It's kind of, yeah, it, it shows that it matters. It shows that people care about it. It's kind of risky, right? That's I mean, what I mean. Like, it matters like yeah, who yeah. gets what, when, and the fact that yeah. this is all like simultaneous yep. events. Yep. Uh, no, it's pretty I mean, wild really, when you think about it. Um, and, you know, it, I think it, by and large, it has sort of worked out well, which partly I attribute to the fact that, you know, the people working in this, again, are kind of nice, thoughtful people, like, you know, and, and constructive people, right? And, and maybe it's because we're all young that we don't have sort of weird power dynamics where, like, I'm the editor of some top five so I can shut out my, I, not that this happens, I don't know, but like, you know right. what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, that sort of, that no, sort of power dynamic isn't that. there. I think yeah. Like, uh... yeah. But we, it was very stressful. And, you know, as we were writing it, there was a third paper that started coming out, the Adao et al. paper, which was oh. sort of taking our, uh, you know, identification approach and taking really seriously the inference issues that come out of that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there was a time when there were three papers and none of them were submitted yet. And it was very stressful. And somehow we all managed to get, you know, top five publications out of it. I don't quite understand how, but I'm very thankful for it. And yeah. we we're definitely all refereeing each other's papers and I think making them better, I, I hope, in the, in the process and learning a lot in the process for sure. I wonder if the fact that both of y'all's paper came out at the same time actually endogenously changes y'all's papers because mm, don't y'all have to kind of like, oh, definitely, process yeah. like saying yeah, what yeah. we are and what we're not. And it kind yeah, of becomes you, this like exogenous shift, exogenous share. Yeah, I think it actually made the papers stronger because it forced us to really differentiate the two approaches. So yeah. the, the beauty of shift share IV is that there is actually two very fundamental different approaches to identification. One that's based on sort of randomness in the shocks, that's kind of a natural experiment approach that's like our paper, and one that's based on kind of parallel trends holding with respect to the shares, that's sort of Paul's paper, Paul, uh, Isaac and Henry's paper. Um, and it's kind of cool how both of them could work in principle, right. but they have very different practical implications. And I think you're right that because we were working on them at the same time, we really had to very clearly define the differences mm -hmm. and especially the practical differences, right? Because right. someone reading the paper wants to know, like if I adopt this strategy versus that, how does it yeah. affect how I do things? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's made them a lot stronger. It's also in terms of the aftermath, now that they're both published, you know, I've been, uh, this is maybe a plug for doing the mixtape workshop on Shiftshare IV in, in, in a month or so. Um, it's, it's helped with teaching to be able to have these two very sort of clear and different approaches to this, this rel relatively old instrument that we can contrast and, and think right. about together. Right, right. So you're going to be doing two, two workshops on instrumental variables for the, the mixtape session stuff. Can you tell me what, uh, what should people expect? You know, why, who, sh who is this for and yeah. what, what should they expect from it? Yeah, so the, the one that's coming up is is coming up, uh, I don't know when this will be posted, but it's coming up next week. So that'll be like the 27th, I think, and the, mm -hmm. and the 28th. So, so that's going to be a general sort of IV workshop. Uh, I did a very similar one back in March that seemed to go over pretty well. And so we're going to sort of do a take two, um, spread over two days with a bit of restructuring in the material. Yeah. I think that one's sort of targeted at, at people who, you know, maybe you learned about IV at some point but you feel like you didn't get a super rigorous 
um, you know, explanation of it, or, you know, maybe you're a grad student and you're learning about these things right now and you sort of want a different perspective on it. We go through the basics of IV and then we do some frontier stuff. So like, you know, thinking about characterizing compliers and a heterogeneous yeah. treatment effects approach or thinking about judge IV, we talk a lot about, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about shift to share IV in that, but it's mostly gonna be sort of the basics of IV. And then the second one is this new shift share IV specific one. I'm very excited about that one. I've been sort of doing guest lectures here and there on shift share IV. And so I have this accumulated set of lecture notes, but I haven't sort of sat down and really fleshed them out. And you know, one of the things we try and do in the workshops is have these like labs where you actually code for yourself and see how I code for myself, like these different procedures. And so developing labs for shift share IV, that one's gonna be a lot of fun. It's also gonna to relate to this newer work that Kirill and I have, Kirill Borisak and I have been doing on instrument recentering, which is sort of a generalization of some of the stuff in, in shift share IV. But um, yeah, so I'm very excited about both of these. You know, the mixtape thing is, is awesome because it just allows you to reach this audience that you otherwise wouldn't. And you know, it's, it's very interactive, it's very fun to teach. Uh, and so hopefully there'll be more courses coming and we can develop yeah. some more sort of uh, remixes and, and whatever yeah, musical, right. Right. <laughs> musical puns right. we can come up with. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Solos <laughs> yeah. and duets and stuff. Yeah, duets, uh, yeah. Well, it's so, so much fun to talk. Um, yeah. And uh, I, uh, good luck with this paper. It, it, it's probably uh, um, good. Is, is this the kind of paper with Paul and Michael that you feel like people, when they read it, are going to be like nervous that they're that the papers <laughs> on their Vita are, are need to be have an asterisk? I think file? people. I, I think people will be pleasantly surprised by the way that we spin the paper because I okay. think again, again, you know, getting back to this point, it's important to point out when potential problems exist, but. Yeah the fact that a potential problem exists does not mean that a problem yeah, exists. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I think we're going to, you know, try and spin it neutrally and say like, look, you know, you should maybe check that there are these problems, but keep calm, you know, <laughs> like right. don't, don't panic as they say in, in mostly harmless, right. And like Sorry. hitchhikers. Right. So, okay. so that's my hope is that it's nothing to be too afraid of. You'll, okay. The truth will set you free. <laughs> that's exactly right exactly right. Right. all right man it's good to, it's good to see you yeah tomorrow. thanks scott thanks for the opportunity all right